The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. I'm delighted to introduce you to my guest today, Henry Lee. Henry is the author of Presumed Dead, a true life mystery of the murder of Nina Sharanova, a story he covered from start to finish. More about Nina in a moment. Let's just talk about Henry for a second. He's been a crime reporter for over 20 years. He's a reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle, where he covers crimes, courts, and aviation. He has a psychology degree from Cal Berkeley, where he was a new, where he was a reporter and editor at the Daily Californian Student Newspaper. He's appeared on CNN, HLN, MSNBC, Fox News Channel, Court TV, Oxygen, and Investigation Discovery, just to name a few. Henry, good morning to you. Welcome. Thank you, Francie. Glad to be here. I'm glad to have you. This is uh, such an interesting story we're going to be talking about. Uh, Russian-born Nina Sharanova vanished in 2006. She fell in love with a computer whiz kid, Hans, Hans Reiser, while he was visiting and working in Russia, and Nina was a gynecologist. Nina and Hans married, then moved to Oakland, California and set up housekeeping. She continued to pursue her medical career and the couple had two children, a boy and a girl. But the marriage was in trouble and subsequent divorce proceedings became very contentious. So one Sunday night, Nina was scheduled to have dinner with her friend Ellen and never showed up. Today, Henry's going to tell you about a chain of events that surprised even the most seasoned of investigators. Henry, how did were you assigned to this case, or did you just pick it up uh, from the news? It was kind of both, Francie. I uh, cover mostly East Bay crimes and courts, and so when this first broke over the Labor Day weekend, I, I immediately knew that something was unusual about this case, that this is a woman a mother of two who would not leave her kids like that. So I knew that there might have been some foul play involved from the beginning. Right, yeah. I, and I think uh, probably that was the conclusion that everybody thought from the beginning. Um, actually, right. so so you started pursuing the case, and what happened next? Well, I knew that there was a contentious divorce between Hans and Nina, so I immediately pulled the file at the Alameda County Courthouse the uh, divorce filing that Nina had initiated, and it was very clear from the outset that uh, there were a lot of accusations flying on both sides. Hans accused Nina of being a bad parent, of uh, uh, engaging in an affair with a man who had an interest in S&M or sadomasochism. Hans um, also said that uh, Nina might be stealing from his finances. Now, Nina, in return, said that 
Hans was more or less an absentee father who allowed their son to play violent video games, which led to nightmares. So I knew that there was a lot of bad blood uh, on both sides, and I immediately knew that Hans would naturally be looked at as a suspect. And Nina at the time was also acting as the bookkeeper for his business, correct? That's right. Hans was a computer entrepreneur, an expert, a computer geek, if you will. He went to Cal at a very young age, uh, immediately started his own uh, name, Sys Business, is what it's called. Uh, he, he invented his own file share system. So he was fairly well known within the computer industry. And so Nina more or less uh, helped him with the business. And Nina had, has, was she actually practicing as a gynecologist in Russia? She was. And when she was here in Oakland, she was busy taking uh, prep courses to become a doctor here in the U.S. So she was not yet a doctor here. She was preparing to do so. Yeah. And and you were talking about this company called Namesis. Is N-A-M-Y-S? As, right. Am I and, yeah, named N-A-M-S-Y-S. Yeah, so he, he named it, uh, uh, his company more or less rotated or focused on a file system that he named after himself called Riser uh, FS. And so uh, it was pretty, uh, you know, new at the time. He refused to be bought by uh, other companies. He wanted to maintain his own cadre of programmers, who a lot of them were from Russia, so that's how he met Nina. He, uh, Hans went to Russia to find some programmers to hire for cheap, and he, that's where he met Nina in St. Petersburg, and the two fell in love over there. Interesting. And this was uh, this this program he developed was a lot like the Linksys program, wasn't it? Yeah, it allowed people to organize things on their computers, probably a lay, lay way of talking about it, but he... Uh, did not want anyone to meddle with it. He uh, also filed a loss against Microsoft. Um, he was the little guy battling it out against everyone who he perceived was in his way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that paranoia has driven him from, from uh, to where he is today, pretty much. Um, so I remember the Labor Day weekend when she was when Nina. Uh, was reported missing, and how long was it after that that her car was found um, nearby to their to his home? It was about maybe eight or nine days later that uh, Hans's, I'm sorry, Nina's Honda Odyssey was found on a street just above Highway 13 in Oakland on Fernwood Drive. Um, it was abandoned. There were rocking groceries from Berkeley Bowl in the back seat. And the groceries were strewn about as if the vehicle had been driven very recklessly. So uh, what was also very interesting about this vehicle was that um, they found Nina's cell phone inside, but the battery was detached. So it was kind of an ominous sign. Uh, They brought search dogs to the scene. Uh, They kept on circling back. Um, Indications that uh, whoever had uh, driven this vehicle there, um, that Nina probably wasn't the person who did it. And wasn't the one of the seats taken out of the car or something? That was a different vehicle. A little bit later, um, the police were surveilling Hans by this point, and including by airplane, and they found Hans driving around. And what was interesting is that he abandoned his Honda CRX, um, also not too far off Highway 13, and that was the vehicle that was missing its passenger seat. So the police immediately uh, suspected that, hey, this is uh, very suspicious. Um why would someone remove a car seat uh, if they were not trying to 
remove any incriminating evidence. So that was another sign. In this Honda CRX, frankly, they also found two books about homicide. So oh, they really? were putting the pieces together, saying, you know what, if Hans is innocent, he sure is acting very suspiciously. Did they ever find that car seat? No. Hans later said that he had thrown it out in a uh, in a dumpster. That's what he said he would have maintained all along. Uh, that he, His reason, though, was not that he was trying to throw any evidence out, but that he, and this was his explanation, one of many he would give throughout his trial, is that, well, you know, I broke my legs many, many years back, and uh, I didn't want to be near my house, the house that I shared with my mom. I would be sleeping in the Honda, so I needed to be comfortable to lay it down. So that's why I took out the seat, not to throw away any evidence out. I just wanted to be comfortable while I sleep in the car. Right, right. And if I remember correctly, um, the chain of events that happened that Sunday was that Nina went to Berkeley Bowl, which is a, a local uh, grocery store, uh, with her two children, and then uh, she dropped them off at Han's house because he was keeping them for the rest of the weekend. Was that right? That's correct. And then that's that's where the trail started, and then she was supposed to go to... to to dinner at her friend Ellen's house at 6 p.m. That's right. And she never showed up. So Right. From- now, keep in mind also, Francie, that initially the police weren't sure of the exact timeline. They were under the initial belief that Nina may have dropped her kids off at Hans's house and then went to Berkeley Bowl. But later they found evidence that, nope, the kids were definitely uh, with Nina at Berkeley Bowl based on video surveillance at the store. And then she took the kids to his house. So they had a little, uh, little initial confusion about the time frame, but they later realized that the last place on earth that Nina was ever seen was right at Hans's house in the Oakland Hills. Mm-hmm. And as it turned out, he did kill her there at the house when the children were in the home. That's right. Is that, the kids is were that downstairs. right? That's right. The kids were downstairs and, uh, uh, and, uh, exactly. When he was downstairs, he, as he later told police, uh, that he had an argument with Nina in the, in the front, near the front door of his home and that he, uh, strangled her to death right as the kids were downstairs. But, uh, this was certainly not something he volunteered initially. He, um, explained, you know, he said he was innocent, that Nina was, uh, had abandoned her kids, possibly gone back to Russia. So there's a lot of, uh, uh, covering up, uh, so to speak. Yeah, and certainly um, you can go there when somebody is living here from another country. You can say, well, you know, she has family back there, but why would she leave her children? Exactly, yeah. Nina's yeah. friends were adamant. She would never, ever leave her kids like that. So something bad must have happened to her. Yeah, and then her their son was put in this very bizarre situation of having to testify about... Uh, what happened that particular day. Do you remember what, what he testified to? That's right. He took the stand and dramatically uh, um, he was asked, well, what was the last that thing that you remember seeing uh, as far as your mom is concerned? And he got off the stand and he showed the jury a picture of what he said was his father bringing a large bag down the stairs of the home and that uh, he was asked, well, what, what does that mean? And he said, well, I think here is Nina, meaning he believed his mom was curled up in a ball in the bag. And in dramatic fashion, the boy got off the stand, uh, laid down on the ground of the courtroom, and 
put himself in a fetal position to mimic what oh. he believed was in this bag, and that was just shocking. It was horrific to have this little boy who was all over about seven years old when his mom disappeared. Uh, that's his last memory of what he believed happened to her. And how old was he at this time? I think he's about probably about 13, 12 or so. And oh, he's now okay. back and in St. Petersburg. He, right, he's now back in St. Petersburg. And that was how long after the disappearance of Nina? So they, uh, the boy and his sister stayed in Oakland for a few months uh, with Nina's mother in Oakland. Uh, and then they eventually went back to St. Petersburg, and now Nina's mom is the legal guardian of her grandchildren. Right, and and how long after the disappearance of Nina was the trial? I can't, I can't remember that. That part. was the balance. He was arrested in October 2006. The trial was around 2008, if I recall. So the trial lasted okay. about six months. So he would have been about 11. The boy, son would have been about 11 when yeah. this all occurred, yeah. No, no, the okay. son was probably about uh, six or at the time. And I thought you were asking how old he now. But oh. Yeah, it's just, uh, it's just tragic all the way around. You have essentially two kids who are orphaned. Uh, they'll never see their mom again, and they definitely don't want to ever see their dad again. And so, of course, we've got uh, Nina's mother never expecting to be raising two young children on her own in St. Petersburg. Completely uh, uh, unbelievable tale. Yeah, Nina's mother. Yeah, now I remember um, <laughs> we were talking earlier before we went live on the air today, Henry. I remember the this uh, view of you chasing Hans Reiser down the street with your microphone trying to talk to him, this iconic picture that was spread all over the Bay Area news of Henry Lee chasing this guy that's a suspect down the street. That's right. And I, I mean, think most of the time I'm used to people saying no comment and they just walk away calmly. This guy <laughs> just took off like a bullet. He just uh, was running at full speed and I was almost kind of like a Pavlovian automatic response to start chasing him, thinking, well, where is he going? i got to talk to this guy. He never really answered our questions. So, uh, and to my astonishment, this was all caught on camera by an NBC news crew. And so uh, I also imagine my surprise when they played that video in court at Hans' <laughs> trial. So everyone's turning around, kind of laughing at me. It's kind of a lighter moment. And all the while I'm blogging about this on my computer, talking about uh, uh, myself becoming part of the news, which is what we usually try to stay out of. You do. That's true. You try to stay out of being being a witness in a trial as well. Exactly. Um, and and that picture. I'm actually looking at that picture right now. Is uh, in the center of the the book that you uh, wrote on this presumed dead uh, that's been uh, published by Penguin, I believe. Is that right? Correct. Yes. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. So that, yeah. I mean, I've always gotten a kick out of that because um, you know, like you and. Invest our um, private investigators get themselves in weird and bizarre situations, and that was oh, certainly absolutely. one for you. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. So, right, we you need to always have to be ready. You always have to be ready. I never, unfortunately, when I say ready, that means I've got my, I've got a police <laughs> metallic notebook that I use as a wallet and a folder full of puzzles that I always carry around in case uh, I have to wait around. And, and as PIs know, there's a lot of waiting to do but I was never prepared to be running at full speed after this guy with all my gear. 
Uh, you know, people are laughing at me, thinking, hey, you weren't running that fast. Well, number one, I've got all these things in my hand, so I'm running with one hand. Number two, I knew that the police were surveilling him at the time, and sometimes I didn't want to <laughs> you know, get them confused and think that I'm going to attack him, so I didn't want to be shot by these cops. So I had to be, <laughs> work very carefully here out there. Thank you. All right. We need to take a break. Henry Lee will return shortly to talk further about Nina and Hans. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Author and crime reporter Henry Lee is telling us the story about Nina Sharonova, a Russian woman who was caught in the snare of her husband's anger, his greed, and his paranoia. So, Henry, um, how long... After all of these events, you're you're running down the street after him. I remember he thought there was a bomb under his car and turned out to be the police had placed a GPS to track him and all of this stuff was going on in the background. They found the car. They found his car. How long was it before they actually arrested him? Well, she went missing in September, early September, Labor Day weekend. It wasn't until, I think, October 10th, 2006, that they arrested him. At this time, there was no body, no witnesses, uh, completely circumstantial case. They said that all the evidence pointed squarely at him, even though they didn't know how Nina died or knew where she was. Yeah, that was, that's pretty amazing. Uh, in fact, they 
they went through the whole trial without knowing what happened, actually. That's absolutely yeah. right. There's still nobody. He is saying that he had nothing to do with it. She must have uh, gone missing or voluntarily left the country. And so he's all spinning all these tales that uh, I don't know where she is, and she might be enjoying a stoli in St. Petersburg. And at the same time, if I remember correctly, he was talking to the press. That's wasn't, right. He, wasn't well, he giving really. interviews? He, he, would, he did draft a press release in which he essentially trashed Nina. Uh, he did have some conversations with, briefly with myself and uh, some other reporters, but he, he essentially evaded uh, all the major questions that I really wanted to ask him. He did not want to talk to the police. Uh, he obviously has a right not to, but he was certainly acting very suspicious that he'd be driving uh, uh, in a way that uh, P.I. knows called counter-surveillance, driving very slow at times, driving very fast, making unnecessary turns, making U-turns, as if he wanted to uh, lose a tail. So the officers mm-hmm. were obviously watching all this, knowing that, you know, this seems to be someone with a guilty conscience or conscience of wrongdoing. <laughs> This is suspicious. They may be a clue. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, but, you know, even even their, uh, from the beginning, it seemed like their relationship was very odd. They had um, a little strange wedding. Can you talk about that a little bit? Right. They were, they were married um, up in the Berkeley Hills uh, where there's all these um, labyrinths. And so... Uh, what happened was he also had the strange dance that he did for uh, Nina. Nina was dressed, in, uh, they were kind of dressed in the Asian garb. They had uh, people uh, in pretty garish costumes. Had, I think uh, uh, Han's best friend at the time uh, was dressed as a woman. I mean, he had all these people dressed up uh, very strangely with this bizarre music, but uh, that kind of epitomized their relationship. Very strange, too different people from different backgrounds coming together. Yeah, and then his claim that uh, Nina was having an affair was actually true, as it turned out, wasn't it? That's Didn't right. It was in fact with Hans's best friend. Now, Hans had essentially told his friend, you know, I'm going to be in Russia a lot. Can you just keep an eye on her? So uh, what happened was he, uh, their relationship uh, evolved from friendship into uh, romance, and that obviously um, put a big divide between Hans and his best friend. And then, of course, this best friend turned out to be one of three potential suspects that Oakland police, police had to look at. They had to look at Hans, they had to look at his best friend, and now uh, enemy, more or less. And they also had to look at Nina's current boyfriend at the time, uh, who was known to be a jealous individual. So they had three men, all potentially suspects with uh, motives, so they didn't know what they had in the beginning. But eventually they say, you know what, all the evidence circumstantially points back at only Hans. Yeah, and, and all three of these men in their own way ways were eccentric as well. That's uh, right, guys. They weren't just your, your average person that you'd meet on the street. Uh, they all had their own little um, eccentricities. Exactly. The, Nina's current boyfriend at the time had let himself into Nina's home in, in Oakland and kind of did a search of his own. Uh, and that kind of uh, upset the police a little bit. We had uh, the, Nina's, uh, the man with whom she had an affair, uh, had been loaning Nina money uh, even within days of this happening. So they had to really, really uh, separate facts and fiction and figure out who had the motive and the means and the ability to kill her. Yeah. And, and what was it, Henry, that... Uh, w- that the 
Oakland Police Department, or I guess is is it Berkeley Police Department, wasn't it? And the Oakland and the Alameda County District Attorney's Office. What was it that, where they thought they had enough to go forward with the uh, a complaint against they Hans? They put all of the um, circumstances pieces together that the last place Nina was seen was at Hans's house. That Hans and Nina were in the middle of the divorce. Uh, Hans had acted suspiciously, buying two homicide books, driving really strangely, evading the police, evading the press, uh, withdrawing thousands of dollars in cash from ATMs on the same day, driving all over the place to get the money. He was acting really, really strange and not helping, not lifting one finger to help uh, the police look for Nina. So where you had Nina's boyfriend and uh, former boyfriend helping, Hans was the only person who didn't participate in any searches. So that uh, was one of many, many red flags that they put together as part of the evidence in the case. And then you attended. Did you attend every day of the trial? I certainly was. In fact, I blogged from my laptop computer, which um, very conveniently, although I didn't know at the time, helped me put the book together. So it was a six-month-long trial during which Hans was on the stand for 11 excruciating days. He would bob and weave, tell all, told the jury all sorts of uh, stories, made a lot of derogatory comments against women and Nina, uh, specifically, he did not do himself any favors with the jury. Yeah. Another good reason for a, <laughs> a defendant not to testify. Um, yeah, I, re- I remember that as well. And, and also, um, didn't he try to interact with the judge all the time? Oh, yeah. He would bicker with the judge. He would bicker with his own attorney. He would argue with the DA. And he would, uh, you know, say, say things like, uh, Back to the DA asked and answered, or you're being evasive to the prosecutor. And he would argue with the judge. The judge lost his uh, patience many, many times. And so it was just a, a show that, uh, uh, while it was pretty entertaining, he did not, again, uh, make himself look good before this jury. And what was the jury doing while he was testifying? Yeah, I, I kept a close watch on them. They, uh, they were pretty stone-faced some of the time, but uh, you could see them kind of uh, shaking their heads, and you could tell when they realized uh, or could see through Hans's lies. And yeah. they came back pretty quickly in, a, in two or two days or so, I believe. Less than that, they came back with a first-degree murder conviction with no body. And so that was a momentous uh, verdict. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, is, if I can't remember correctly, did um, Nina's mother also testify? Nina's mother did. Yes, she did. Yeah. And so did. Uh, Hans's son, but uh, of course Hans's daughter was too young at the time, so she never testified. And uh, Nina's friend Ellen also testified as well. That's right; she took the stand as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so this went on for six months. You're there every day. He's just like just crazy on the witness stand. Eleven days. I can't even imagine listening to uh, him tell his stories for eleven days. Right, and then. There still was no body. So tell us what happened after that. Well, this is a, the most interesting part of the case. He's convicted of first-degree murder, so he's now facing 25 years to life. But in another dramatic twist, the DA said, you know what? If you tell us where Nina's body is, tell us exactly how you killed her, and uh, agree to waive all your appeals, we will let you plead to second-degree murder, which carries a 15 years to life sentence. It's a small difference because the DA knows that 
a lot of murderers never get paroled. They, this simply means that if he takes the deal, he'll get to appear before the parole board 10 years earlier. But what the DA wanted to do was bring some closure to Nina's family. They are in mourning. They still don't know where she is. They want to be able to bury her in a place of their choosing, not uh, where Hans eventually buried her. So Hans mm-hmm. took the deal, and in a very uh, orchestrated uh, set of circumstances, he was allowed to get out of jail. Uh, they took him in a very heavily armed police caravan from the jail in Dublin, California, to the Oakland Hills, where he did take these cops while handcuffed to his defense attorney to the burial spot in the Oakland Hills where he had uh, taken her body and hid it. Uh, deep in a in a uh, hillside, not too far from his house, mm-hmm. and he did take the deal. He did uh, confirm that he strangled her and that he killed her right there with his children in the same house, and that he spent two nights digging a hole while his children slept before putting her inside. And mm-hmm. when they, and when the police dug her up, he was chilling because uh, they found that he, she was found in a bag much as uh, her son had described, seeing this bag being dragged down the stairs by his father. All right. Henry, we need to take another break. Uh, this is a tough time to break, but let's do it. P.I.'s Declassified, we'll be right back with San Francisco Chronicle reporter Henry Lee. Thanks. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. Cali's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact Cali at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. IRB Search is simply the best online data provider for locating people, businesses, and assets. IRB Search gives you strength in numbers. With one click, you can access billions of records. Even with partial information on your subject, IRB Search instantly returns current and past addresses, phone numbers, and more. Call IRB Search today at 1-800-447-2112 to sign up. Mention PIs Declassified and you'll receive a two-week trial of 100 free searches to get started. Call 1-800-447-2112 to find out why IRB Search is simply the best. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. 
You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Hans Reiser was tried and convicted of the murder of his wife, beautiful Russian-born Nina Sharonova. But the bizarre twist that Henry was just talking about, where the, <laughs> the district attorney, the prosecutor, makes a deal with, with, Hen- with Hans Reiser that if he produces the body, they will reduce the sentence to 15 years to life instead of 25 years to life, which is normally what a first-degree murder in California is. So... Um, so I remember this. Were you actually with them that day that they went out to the hills? I was not, but I was just like the uh, general public glued to the TV because all the stations were breaking in saying, breaking news, Hans Reiser leads cops to wife's body. And that was just, you know, helicopters were all, all overhead, including the police helicopter. Uh, the cops wanted to make sure, hey, we've got a convicted murderer here. Uh, we do not want him running loose in the woods. So that's why they took right. the unorthodox step of handcuffing him to his own defense attorney. I know. Uh, that's just so hysterical. That's Willem Dubois. So it was, it was really uh, yet another dramatic twist in this case. Yeah, William Dubois was the defense attorney, and uh, he had quite a uh, difficulty, I would say, with a, a very difficult client trying to... Uh, uh, handle this case. And then the judge, we should mention the judge, uh, Superior Court Judge Larry Goodman, um, you thought he did a really good job managing the case. That's right. And uh, a lot of char- colorful characters uh, indeed in this case. Just uh, uh, Bill Dubois, of course, uh, telling me how I've never listened to one bit of advice. And uh, main part of which uh, you try not to, you don't have to take a stand, but Hans refused that advice. Uh, just talked his way into a first-degree murder conviction is what a lot of people are saying. Yeah, sounds like. Did you actually interview Bill Dubois for the uh, when you did the book? I did, yes. Yeah, and then the prosecutor was Paul Hora. So uh, uh, considering that this was a difficult case to try without a body and with only circumstantial evidence, it sounds like um, Prosecutor Hora did a pretty good job. That's right. He was initially uh, very skeptical skeptical about the evidence. Uh, he wasn't sure how he would prove to a jury of 12 people that uh, not only that, that Nina was dead, but that Hans had killed her. But eventually, in his closing argument, he did a uh, very masterful presentation. He put up a, uh, two easels and one picture of Nina, another with a picture of Hans, and he put all these puzzle pieces of circumstantial evidence that made clear in his mind, hey, we've got all these puzzle pieces, put it all together, very clearly, it's Hans who's responsible. Mm-hmm. And it was probably the son, Rory, that was the, the key component to the conviction, don't you think? Yeah, he was part of it. He was very heartbreaking for the jury to watch this uh, boy without his mother uh, explaining how he saw what he believed he saw that, uh, that day. Yeah, right. Well, <laughs> there there is a picture I I remember seeing on the news of them out at the crime scene, out of the burial scene rather, with all the police officers, with the defense attorney handcuffed to Hans Reiser. And when I you know, when I saw that it was it's unprecedented. Right. I've, and they, I've never they heard they of knew. anything like that. Have you? No, that that's uh you know, they rarely grant uh, prisoners access to the outside world, but they knew that uh 
these were some extenuating circumstances. So Judge Larry Goodman signed the order saying, bring him out, you know, bring out the cavalry. So the Oakland police brought out some of its finest SWAT officers. There was a helicopter overhead. They had all their uh, big guns out. And uh, you know, they weren't taking any chances because they didn't know if this was a setup, if someone was there to uh, ambush them or not. So they had to take all necessary precautions, including the handcuffing. So it was a really unusual scene. And wasn't Judge Goodman out there with him? He was. He was there for a time, just managing it all. Uh, just an uh, unbelievable scene because, uh, you know, I've gone back to that burial site, and as the police rightfully noted, no one other than uh, Nina's killer would have been able to find the bodies. People really? were saying, well, wait a minute, look at all these canine searches. Look at all the uh, uh, people looking every uh, under every rock and bush, nook and crank. But I, I equate it to, let's say you're on a big sandy beach, and you imagine if someone were to pick an arbitrary part of the beach, or in this case the hills, uh, very uh, overgrown brush, uh, it's pretty easy to hide a body in these places, unfortunately. Yeah, and, and that area is very wooded um, and hilly as well, and uh, and not well-traveled. Right. Is, it, is, is, it is off a well-traveled path, but you would have to take another deer path down the main path, down some very steep brush. There's poison oak uh, in the area, a lot of uh, slippery slopes, and you would have to know exactly where to go. So this, this guy uh, knew what he was doing. He certainly had frequented this park before because it's right near his house. Yeah. Well, and then, in another bizarre twist, just recently, tell us what happened then. Well, Hans was sued um, very early on by his children for wrongful death. They were saying that uh, they certainly endured emotional suffering, and they wanted Hans to pay uh, at least $25 million in damages. So he went to trial in civil court in uh, this year in Alameda County. I covered that case as well, and in a stunning uh, verdict, this jury uh, ordered Hans to pay $60 million, $60 million in damages to his children. Now, keep in mind, uh, Hans has said all along he doesn't have any money uh, at all, not able to pay one cent to his own children. But legally, the children had to protect themselves in the event Hans develops an idea while behind bars or has any hidden assets that he may have. Uh, the children had to, had to make sure that they got this judgment. And it was just another... Another separate trial where Hans this time um, defended himself in civil court. You don't have a right to a court-appointed lawyer. That's only in the criminal court. So he didn't have any money. He defended himself, was on the stand again, more meandering, more uh, discursive talk, uh, and he more or less said, you know, same thing that he had maintained all along, uh, except he said, well, yes, I killed her, but, um, you know, here's the reasons why. So, he, again, he did not endear himself to this jury either. And his reasons that he stated that he killed her were, were because of he what? To, he, yeah, he said that uh, he, he, there was a danger to the children and I had to protect the children. Now, keep in mind all along, Hans has said that Nina was making up illnesses in the two children in what is known as Munchausen by proxy disorder. Now, of course, we all know that Nina herself is a doctor right. and so there was never, ever any evidence that uh, Nina was making up anything. Now, there was a time when Rory had a, uh, ear ache that turned out to be an ear infection that required surgery. What did Han say? No, he doesn't need it. He's probably just allergic to something. Uh, so here it was a man who thought he knew, uh, what was best for his children, didn't believe, uh, Nina when she said, no, this is serious. 
And so Hans wanted the best doctors, the best dentists. He believed he had all the right in the world to say no to what he believed were invasive procedures. But uh, right. we all know the truth here. Yeah, and and just say what M- M- I can't even say it. Mutchausen's by proxy is. So, so our listeners, if they don't know. There's a disorder in which parents um, make up illnesses in their children to get attention. So you have all these people start, oh, well, you know, are you okay? Is your kids okay? But there's no evidence for that whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hans would also accuse Nina of uh, all these different uh, maladies, uh, which, again, there's no evidence. So in his mind, he was removing a threat to his children, and he also accused uh, Alameda County of being complicit. He essentially said, well, if the county had listened to me about uh, what I've been saying in divorce papers, I would not have had to kill Nina. So that was right. kind of a bizarre logic there as well. <laughs> yeah. And now they and they actually, um, because he was representing himself, they brought him up from prison, and he's he's located in prison now in Coalinga, which is about, I'm thinking, three hours from Oakland. Is that about right? Three to four hours. Okay. That's right. That's correct. He initially was brought to San Quentin, and then he was uh, also in a different prison before being transferred recently to Pleasant Valley State Prison. He'll be there for a while. If he does not, uh, you know, show remorse, he's probably never going to get out. I can't imagine that he would ever show remorse. He's going to continue to say, I had to kill them to protect them. I had to kill her to protect my children. That's right. Yep. <laughs> oh, that's bizarre. So, uh, so they actually brought him. They transported him to Oakland, three or four hours drive. Put him in jail um, in the local facility, and allowed him to go to court every day and represent himself on a civil case. Yeah, I, actually, I think they did have to bring him back to San Quentin Prison. But the unusual thing was this: that the uh, Morrison and Forster, the uh, San Francisco legal powerhouse that represented the children. They re- they did so. They handled this case pro bono. They also agreed to pay for the prisoner transport, the prisoner uh, security. They had state really? prison guards in the Alameda County Courthouse in Hayward where this trial occurred. So, um, you know, we we all asked them, well, why are you doing this uh, for free? And they were saying we we have a long history of uh, uh, taking cases where children need representation, where they otherwise would not be able to get the defense they need. So, they're a pretty noble things for uh, the law firm to do, they, they made clear that they are not getting one penny in doing so. So uh, that's what happened. That's that's amazing. And what do you think, Henry? Do you think he has assets stashed someplace? You know, it's, it's hard to say. He, he again, uh, never wanted to be bought out by companies like Sun Microsystems or Microsoft. And he, he has maintained, well, I gave away the software for free. In fact, that's what he did. So whether or not he has any assets that might be uh, not, it may, it may not be out there. So it, it's doubtful that these kids will get uh, any money. And, and that's sad because they've lost essentially both their parents. They've lost all their uh, livelihood here. Friends will never see their mom again, never see their dad again, and they're struggling. Right. And let's see. Now, he can't, he has no right of appeal because he made this deal. Is that correct? He, he, he cannot appeal his conviction or sentence, but that has not stopped him. He's already filed a federal suit naming <laughs> uh, almost everyone in the case uh, of some kind of wrongdoing. Uh, he is blaming everyone except himself for the situation. Yeah, that's amazing. 
Yeah, so it, had he been, had he left the conviction if, at the 25 years to life, um, the jury verdict and then the sentencing of 25 to life, had he left that the way it was without making the deal um, to produce the body, then he would have had a right to appeal, correct? Uh, perhaps, and that's true. And But yet it's all up to the state parole board when you go before them and plead your case, hey, please let me out. That's what most people do. Please, I, I, I rehabilitated myself. Uh, give me a second chance. Uh, but in this case, uh, this is Hans Reiser you're talking about, who believes that he did everything for a reason. And so uh, one thing that is sure in many people's minds, had he not taken the deal, uh, it's very, very evident that uh, Nina Reiser would still be uh, buried up in the hills somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. That's true. You know, and you never know. 20 years, 30 years later, maybe some bones will, you know, come up on top of the ground or something or animals get to it or you never know. Right. But uh, exactly. in this case, it sounded like she was buried pretty deep. Yeah, it was probably a four by six hole, probably six feet uh, below. And, of course, the, the brush had overgrown it by then. It was just uh, unbelievable. Like, she, again, she was buried there for a good two years. Yeah, yeah. What a sad case. I mean, it's a, a just a. She was a beautiful woman with a um, a bright future, two gorgeous children, um, and uh, just a very unfortunate, unfortunate situation. What would you say if you were to? Um, I know this case was different than anything you've ever covered before, but. What is the one thing that just pops out in your mind when you think about this case? Well, just the, the sheer arrogance that Hans exhibited uh, from day one. He uh, evaded the police. He ran away from me. Uh, he uh, certainly lied his way through the stand. He's just uh, very indicative of someone with a huge ego who could not and would not appreciate the harm and the pain and the hurt that he has caused Two children. I mean, that's just the sad part of this, that these two young children, uh, essentially orphaned, will never see their parents again, and, you know, they are the innocent victims in this tragedy. That, uh, exactly. You know, through all the lies and obfuscations, you've got two young children who are now suffering for the rest of their lives, and they're just trying to pick up the pieces as best as they can. Yeah. Exactly. We have to take another break, Henry. Stay tuned for more about the murder of Nina Sharonova. We'll be right back. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 
C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. My guest, Henry Lee, is the author of Presumed Dead, a true crime novel about the murder of Nina Sharanova and subsequent conviction of her husband, Hans Reiser. So, Henry, I know people that are listening to this show would be interested in knowing where they can buy this book, Presumed Dead. Where would you tell them to go? You can uh, visit your local bookstore, give them a ring, and ask them to order it for you. I think it's now on the shelves now, or you can go on Amazon. Um, actually, I will say that local bookstores, if you're in Oakland, uh, they are still carrying it uh, locally, or just give your bookstore a call. Uh, you can also get the uh, ebook version uh, at your favorite e-bookseller. Uh, e-bookseller, okay, and Amazon, they can buy it because this is this show goes worldwide, so people yeah. in other parts of the world may be interested in this book. And uh, and so, how did you decide to write this book? I know the case probably took over your life for six months or so, but yeah, well, or well, even more. Right. What's interesting, Francie, is that I never intended to write a book when this case began. Uh, even when I was uh, writing the blog for the San Francisco Chronicle, what happened was after the case was almost over, I got a call from an agent in New York who said, I, I'm familiar with the case. I've read your blog. I think we can make this work. And lo and behold, uh, I was able to put pen to paper, uh, write out this book, uh, and I didn't take any time off. There's a lot of crimes still going on in the San Francisco Bay Area, so... Uh, really? Late nights, early mornings, writing this book, going over a lot of the evidence, meeting with the principal folks in the case. Had a great time doing it because, uh, you know, on a day-to-day basis, I'm used to just, just the facts, ma'am. Uh, but for this book, I had to research things like weather patterns. Uh, I had to look up uh, ge- geological charts and talk to a lot of experts just to kind of uh, what I call get, getting the, um, uh, just to smush it all out, get all the details out there to explain to people, you know, what what kind of day was it when, when Nina disappeared or what... Uh, what was Hans experiencing on this certain day. So a lot, a lot of details, uh, a lot of research went into this. How did you possibly, and you're working, and I know you work more than 40 hours a week, so you're working full-time covering the news for the Chronicle and trying to write this book in your spare time, which you don't have any. That's right. Well, lots of people like to joke that I don't sleep, which is not partially true. I do sleep, uh, you know, <laughs> at night, but there is a lot of, lot of uh stuff to do on a given day. So I like to stay busy. I like to multitask. I, I write a couple stories at least uh, every day, uh, sometimes on weekends too. But I, I enjoy doing what I do. And I just encourage anyone who's listening, you know, you really have to be passionate about what you're doing. Uh, I was on a path uh, for pre-med at Cal. Kind of parental pressures involved. But, you know, I, 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 rebel, I rebelled essentially 
I uh, <laughs> decided to study psychology because it's half-ology, as I told my parents, uh, and eventually turned to journalism because that's where my passion was. Uh, I, I like to tell people I've been chasing cops since I was a kid on my BMX bike with my best friend. We were seven. We chased all the <laughs> cops in Orange County, and that's potentially what I'm doing now, just trying to find a good story. And I'll bet they're very proud of you now. I hope so. My dad yeah. also told me years ago, you know what, you need to make more money. You should go write a book. <laughs> Lo and behold, <laughs> this is what happens. I'm really fortunate in that regard. That's great. Well, now when, when the agent called you and said, uh, I think we can make this work, were you on board right away or did you, did you have to think about it or were you thinking, no, I'm not, I, there's no way I can write a book. What, what, what are you crazy? Well, I'll be quite honest for you. I think he, uh, he actually emailed me and I actually didn't respond for a day or so. And, and that's very unusual. I, I'm known to respond to emails very quickly. So I really had to think about it. I was a little scared and, and very, uh, uh, I'll make up a word, trepidatious, just simply because I never have written a book, uh, didn't know how to write one, simply because of my training, which is just in and out, you know, in one year, out the next year, done by the end of the day. This was going to be a momentous, long-term uh, project, but I'm glad with the results. Um, uh, I'm glad that the readers uh, and, uh, and folks who uh, encouraged me to write a book did so, because this is something that it was a... Uh, a uh, a pleasure to to do. Pleasure to write the book, put it all together. Hopefully, uh, people will see a lot of the uh, background of Oakland and the criminal court system, the work of PIs, a lot of uh, uh, players in this judicial system that are at work here. You know, I find that amazing, Henry. That you know, somebody that is as accomplished a writer as you are, that that writes every single day, would find, be anxious about putting it into a book. I, that's fascinating to me. I think that's yeah, an inspiration tough. for people that are listening, maybe that are considering writing a book someday or have a case, a uh, private investigator has a case they, they always thought about writing a book about. I, that's fascinating to me that you really yeah. were nervous about it. I was nervous, and, and but then I realized, you know what? I've been reading these true crime books myself since <laughs> right. I was a kid. So I thought, you know what? Um, you know, I can do it. So uh, part of the research was also rereading some of my favorite true crime books and seeing what people did, so so that it wouldn't be so dry. You know, in a journalism uh, daily piece, I simply say Hans left the building. You know, but in the bu- in my book, I'd say things <laughs> like Hans. You know. Threw open the door, looked at the blue sky, it was 80 degrees, all the robins were chirping. Yeah, you had to kind of put a lot of detail in there. So I, I, I had fun doing it. It was a good yeah. experience. So would you do it again? Would you I write might. another book? There, there's some potential other projects out there that I'm thinking about. I'm always looking for good stories. Uh, there's certainly plenty here in the Bay Area. You've got uh, no shortage of tragedy here. Um, and I'm trying to tell good stories as sensitively and as accurately as I can day in and day out, whether it's uh, for a story in the Chronicle or the potential book. That's great. That's really great. And you've been to the, you've been at the Chronicle 20 years now. <clears throat> do you, you do more, you do courts and crime, but you also cover aviation cases, correct? Yeah, and that's kind of like my, uh, as a, another childhood fascination with planes like the Blue Angels and uh, you know, my daughter and I, we like looking at all the planes that fly over the house. It's just kind of like a, a part of the childhood fascination, fascination with sirens and uh, excitement. But unfortunately, because I am a crime and uh, more or less disaster reporter, I don't get to cover the happy uh, aviation incidents. More or less, yeah. I'm always called in to 
write about uh, the fatal pressure. So my prism is one of uh, tragedy. I see things, uh, unfortunately, in a negative light, and that kind of, uh, you know, it, it can get to people. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it's a personal thing where I'm telling my friends, you know, be careful, don't back up uh, without looking what's in the driveway, or I'll tell uh, students in journalism classes, uh, you know, don't be uh, so focused on your iPhone because you might be a robbery victim. So I, there's always things that I'm always going to assume uh, something bad might be happening in the next corner. I cannot drive uh, past any corner in Oakland or Berkeley or the Bay Area where I'll re- immediately remember right. an incident that happened there. So it, it, it's 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 so challenging, but and you try to keep your emotions in the box, otherwise you wouldn't be able to do your job day in, day out. Well, that's exactly what happens to private investigators. That's You drive around the area and you mark the area by the cases you've worked. And, and it's the same kind of thing because people don't need a private investigator unless they're, they have a problem. Exactly. Uh, and you know this. Just like uh, maybe some journalists like myself, yourself, PIs, police officers, it can be minutes or hours of boredom punctuated by seconds right. of terror exactly. or pure adrenaline. So you never know what you're going to do. I certainly didn't wake up that morning and expect to be chasing a, an alleged murderer down the street. Or right. uh, you know, a lot of strange things happen uh, to many of us day in and day out, whereas you know, most people run away from uh, uh, fires and shootings. We kind of run toward them or you know, pick up the <laughs> aftermath of, of sadness. So, exactly. it, it, but it does make for an interesting, uh, uh, interesting job, obviously. It does, and I, I certainly appreciate you being on the show today, Henry. It's been a delight, and we have to close the show here. Um, let me just mention our featured sponsor of the week is IRB Search, a data provider who serves investigative professionals catering exclusively to private investigators, process servers, bail bondsmen, judgment recovery, and repossession specialists. If you're interested in IRB Search, go to www.irbsearch, one word, dot com, or call one 800 If you're interested in being a sponsor for PIs Declassified, contact Sandra Rogers at Voice America, 1-480-553-5756. Upcoming shows, I have former Secret Service agent Joseph Palella, a member of the detail covering President John Kennedy, author and investigative reporter Diane Diamond, contributing author for Newsweek, The Daily Beast, Private investigator Jan Tucker, private investigator and computer forensics expert Bob Raddus. So tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators. It's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Henry. My pleasure. You've been listening to PIs Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program, brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel.